It's really good to see you today. Next week will be a little different, as Alan said. Um, we're excited about small groups kicking back up for our children, especially. And uh, you, um, you will have an opportunity to uh, get in your small group. But uh, for some of you, the 10 o'clock hour will work great. And for many of you watching online, I've been thinking, okay, we're gonna, we want to come back when there's something for our children, then uh, this is a good opportunity for you to kind of wade back in as well. You, some people wonder why the 30 minutes between services, why couldn't we do that a little quicker? Uh, because it takes us 30 minutes to sanitize and to get it ready for the next service. So uh, we felt like 8.30. 10 o'clock, and then bumping this to 11.30, and, uh, and that will, will be helpful. So uh, we encourage you to find your place. And if you show up at 11 o'clock next week, uh, you can help sanitize the uh, building. Um, I joke. I say that jokingly. Um, what is the normal family? Don't answer out loud. But what is the normal family? Uh, if we would, if we were to say today, what is the normal family, or what in our mind's eye is the normal family, it might go something like this. You've got a, a young man who grows up in a family, and that family is stable, and mom and dad have been together, and, uh, he grows up with his siblings, grows up, uh, in a, in a, a safe environment, Christian environment, is able to grow up in that. And then we got a young lady, same thing on her side. And uh, they grow up. They're able to go to college. And uh, they go to college and they meet each other. And they fall in love. And they graduate college. They get married. They go off and start their lives somewhere. And they have successful jobs. And then they say, it is time for us to have children First time, bang, they have children. There, There's no problem in being able to have children. They have their children. They have 2.7. Uh, a guy and a girl, that's the average today. And so they have their children. They have a boy and a girl. And, and uh, they have their dog. They're picket fence. They live in the suburbs somewhere. They're, uh, he's successful in his business. Their marriage is great. They go to church. They're actively involved in church. The kids even become teenagers. Don't make any problems. They they respect their parents. They uh, grow up in that. And then this young couple that grew up in these homes, they get to their 50-year anniversary. They look out there, and their sons and daughters are married. They have perfect marriages. They have perfect grandkids, perfect great-grandkids. And then uh, eventually they pass away, and that is the normal family as we think about it, at least uh, going back to the 50s and 60s with Leave it to Beaver and uh, with Father Knows Best and the, and the, the stories that came out. And, and we're thinking, Mark, there is no way that there is no normal family that even comes close to that. Right. If I use the term, though, dysfunctional family, all of you have a view of what dysfunction is, and, and many of you will say, yeah, it's my family. I can take you the album and show you the dysfunctional family. The dysfunctional family, dysfunction literally means not normal or cannot handle uh, normal, 
And so since normal is not there, everybody kind of takes up that this is the new normal. So that's, that's the way we look at it. And we look at our culture today, and there is not a family today that uh, has not been racked by the tidal wave of our worldly fallen culture. None of you uh, can say, well, if that's normal what you painted, even though that's abnormal, that there is no way that exists today. And, and there are certain trends today that even go against any sign of normalcy. Uh, cohabitation um, is the norm before marriage today. Uh, marriage has lost its sanctity of what it, uh, the way God set it up. Divorce is more common than marriage. Gender confusion is widespread. Fatherlessness is epidemic. Same-sex relationships are common and even encouraged. Biblical marriage and parenting are seen as archaic. A generation is growing up and assuming this is normal. That's what happens. And as it continues to go, normalcy will be different in the eyes of everybody. But did you know this? You did not pick your family, nor did you pick when you would live. In fact, it says in Acts seventeen twenty six that God himself chooses the, the history and the boundaries of when you will live so that people will come to know Christ. And, and uh, here you are today. You did not choose your family. You did not even choose to live uh, where you live in America in a blessed place. You did not choose that. God chose it for you. Well, last week, we started talking about a guy named Joseph. And we went to the end of the story. Because you needed to understand the end of the story. Joseph is is, uh, saving his whole family. He's living for God. He's found favor. He's blessed. He's overcome these incredible hardships to be where he is. And so that you understand the overall picture of Joseph's life, God is working through Joseph and his family lineage to set up the children of Israel whom the Savior of the world is eventually going to come out of. That's what he's setting up. But Joseph has to go through all of these things so that God can test his character so that he has um, the plan in place of what God is going to do. But... Today we go back and we see how Joseph's character got tested and it began right from the very beginning. So in Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 1, I'm going to read 1 through 5, and uh, and we'll see what God has for us. It starts out this way. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. I'm not going to stop every moment, but so that you understand the character's Jacob is the father of Joseph, okay? Jacob is going to have 12 sons, and these are going to turn into the 12 tribes of Israel is where they're going to come from. But Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. Now, his father was Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham. So so I'm going to be using those names here in just a minute. So in the land of Canaan, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph... Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Uh, sometimes uh, scholars will say this was a, a robe not only of colors, but it had sleeves which would make it of great value. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, so that you understand the original language, his brothers hated him. They hated him with a passion. They hated him. Now, Joseph, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over with you a little bit about Joseph's family background. He put the fun in dysfunctional. And so many of you think, well, okay, we'll hear about his life and then we'll put it up against mine. But let's look at it a little bit. I already mentioned that, that Joseph's father was Jacob. Jacob's father was Isaac. Isaac's father was Abraham. This is important to know if you know anything about Jewish history. Abraham, his grandfather, had been an idol worshiper. But God picks him out and has a personal encounter with him, and Abraham is all buy-in. I mean, all buy-in to the point of when Isaac is born, God tests him by saying, take your son Isaac up on a mountain, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so what does Abraham do? He takes his son Isaac up on this mountain, but before he can kill his son, God provides a ram in the thicket. That's another whole uh, sermon series. But, but... Abraham has totally bought in. But God tells Abraham and his wife Sarah, you're gonna be, you're gonna have descendants that are as many as the stars. Now Abraham is an old man. His wife Sarah is an old woman. They're, they're not gonna think, have any children. So Sarah takes it upon herself to give her handmaid to Abraham for him to have children with. So, uh, in other words, how many of you are guilty of this? God has given a plan, we try to flesh it out. And that's what Abraham and Sarah were trying to do, flesh out a God-given vision that can't happen. And so what happens is, is that uh, the handmaid of Sarah becomes with child, and she has a son, Ishmael, who's going to be a thorn in the side of the Jews for until this day. And so it was trying to flesh out God's plan is not a, a good idea. But... As God would have it, he had a son of choice, and Sarah became expectant with child in her old age, and she had a son by the name of Isaac that I've already mentioned. And so Isaac was born, and Isaac uh, marries a girl, a looker, by the name of Rebekah. Now, there will not be a test on this, but all these names are vital. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they become with child, and they have twins, okay? They have uh, Esau and Jacob. Now, when when they came, it comes time for these twins to be born. Esau is born born first, so he's going to be the firstborn and have the birthright. And we think, what's the big deal with that? I'm the firstborn and I got nothing. And uh, but here's the deal: if you were born in a Jewish family, it would be different. But you're not. So get over it. 
And so the, the older one would get two-thirds, the younger one would get a third, okay? And so he would get more, and he has the blessing of the father as well. So what happens is, is that when the Esau is born, Jacob, the, the other little twin about to be born, is actually grabbing the heel of his brother. And so they gave him the name Jacob, which means heel grabber, go for that. But it also means deceiver. Because Jacob was going to learn to deceive much. So these twins are born. And among Abraham and Rebekah, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, I'll get this right. I want you to get all the names uh, uh, here. Among Isaac and Rebekah, they, um, they had favoritism. Okay? Isaac favored Jacob. Uh, excuse me, Esau, and Rebekah favored Isaac, uh, Jacob. <laughs> See, Pam corrected me before the service on some things, and I'm, I'm, I'm fumbling. I can read my notes. You know what this means to a preacher? Nothing. <laughs> All right. You're with me. Isaac is married to Rebekah, and they have two children, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the firstborn. He gets a birthright. Jacob is then born, grabs the heel, called the deceiver. Rebekah really loved Isaac because he was a, a, a little softer, very close to his mom. And uh, Isaac really loved Esau because he was a man of the, of the world and uh, rough and tumble. You're with me so far. So what happens is, is Rebecca cooks up a plan for uh, the deception of Isaac when it comes to Jacob and Esau. Jacob ends up getting the birthright, and he, he, he takes it from his brother Esau. That meant that he was going to be considered the firstborn. He was going to have the blessing of his father. And so that's where they, they went with that thing. So here's what Rebecca says to her son Isaac. You better, uh, Jacob, you better... Run. <laughs> Fix the teleprompter. Here. I'm going to get this out. It's a good history lesson. All right. Read the Bible. It's all in there. I'm not making this up. All right. So, Rebecca tells Jacob... You need to get and go. And so, because your brother Esau is going to come after you. So he goes to his uncle Laban's property, which is uh, in another land. And he goes to Laban, and he begins to work for his uncle Laban. And as he works for his uncle Laban, he falls in love with uh, Rachel. And Rachel's a looker, and so he wants to marry Rachel. And so Laban says, you work seven years, and you can have Rachel. So he works the seven years. It comes time for the wedding. And I don't know if Jacob got inebriated or what. But in the, in the middle of the night, instead of bringing Rachel, they bring Leah to the house. And uh, he doesn't know it, but he wakes up in the morning and said, I thought it was Rachel, but, whoa, it's Leah. And so Leah was the older, uh, older sister of Rachel. Okay, so they married off the older. He has to work seven more years. So he's given Laban all of this time to marry these two wives. And in the midst of this, 
he uh, tricks Laban into getting a herd of goats that is plentiful. So he, he leaves with, with his family. And uh, in leaving with his family, Esau, he's going to confront Esau again, his brother. And uh, they're going to have an encounter. But what's going to happen is, is that Jacob is going to have an encounter with the Lord in Bethel that's going to change his life. But before that happened, uh, Leah could have children, okay? Rachel was barren for a while, and Leah, man, she could just have kids. And if you read the scriptures, it's like bang, 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 bang. She just has kids and has these sons. And Rachel cannot have children, so what she does is she gives her handmaiden to uh, to Jacob and says, you have a child through her, and it will be it will be considered a child of mine. So here comes the handmaid, bang, they start having kids. Leah says, whoa, she, she's kind of backed off having kids. So she says, I'm going to give you my handmaiden. So it's like, a, it's like a sporting event. I mean, if you're keeping score with what's going on, and then what happens is is the hand servant, uh, handmaiden of uh, Leah starts having kids. Rachel, poor Rachel, still hasn't has kids. And so Leah then has more kids. And then Rachel finally gets pregnant with a child. And she gets pregnant with Joseph. She has Joseph. And you got to remember, Jacob, Rachel was a looker. That was the bride he wanted anyway. And uh, so there was a special uh, bond there. And then Rachel gets pregnant again, has another son, Benjamin, and dies in the process of having Benjamin. So if you're keeping score, one man, four wives, 12 sons, one daughter. Okay, that's the score right now. And what happens is, is Jacob has an encounter with God, and he has a buy-in moment where he buys. It's all completely God's. Okay, so you've got this family. Now, sibling rivalries, uh, mother rivalries. Uh, family is, you got abandonment issues. You've got, uh, brothers that hate their little brother. You've got all of this. And this is what's going on. Now, this is how dysfunctionally, it is so, it, it's so much not a family tree. It's a family bush and you try to figure it out. And so you're thinking, well, if somebody would know about my family, beat that. I mean, it's out of control is what, what we're looking at. And then the other thing about Jacob's family uh, is that Joseph learned deception from his family. If you were to go back through the family line, Rebekah deceived Isaac so that Jacob could get the blessing. Jacob deceived Esau. Laban deceived Joseph by giving him Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob deceived Laban by tricking him out of his goat herds. Rachel deceived Laban to steal the household gods. Go read about that one. Rachel deceives uh, by giving her servant to Jacob. And uh, then there's another story in here. you got to hear the deception because we talk about uh, family blessings and family curses. Let me tell you, deception ran through this family. They had a daughter by the name of Dinah. We only know of one daughter. And she went and saw this guy. And uh, 
he, uh, he abuses her and, uh, in a physical way, sexual way. And, uh, when, when, uh, he, and then she, he's not going to marry her. He just drops her. And so there's two blood brothers of Dinah by the name of Simeon and Levi, and they go in and deceive the whole family of Shechem and the whole community of Shechem, wipe them out completely, kill them all, and you can go read about that. And then they go on this road trip. And if any of you have been on a road trip before, imagine carrying this many people on a road trip to go back to where you need to be. And finally, we have the buy-in moment. Let me. Here's where I'm saying this. Deception just ran through the family. And if anybody could have ran to deception, it would have been Joseph, but he did not. In fact, of the, of the 13, 14 chapters we're going to study about Joseph, there's nothing negative said about him. And in fact, here he grew up in this dysfunctional family. So I thought about it. I thought if Joseph had every right, first of all, to feel pitied, you know, if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, just say your parents divorced and you you uh, got a situation, there's been abuse in the family, maybe some illegal stuff, immoral stuff, the, there would be the feeling of pity that would come. Here's another thing. Joseph could have went to his default, which was deception, but he didn't. Joseph could have felt entitlement for the hard knocks. Listen, my family is screwed up. I'm entitled, God, to something. And then he could have gotten bitter with God instead of a blessing that he walked under. Now, before I make this personal, I hope I haven't confused you too bad today. Because it is confusing. And some of you have said, Mark, if I were to draw up my family bush or my family stick, you would see that it is screwed up as well. I mean... Uh, it's it's amazing I'm even here today, right? Some of you say, I mean, my my parents divorced, or I went through abuse, or or we were poor as poor could be, and and uh, I was passed around from family to family, or whatever it may be. I, we we could come up with all kind of dysfunction that exists in our family. How about this one? How about the dysfunction of a uh, a dad who had lived one way his whole life as a deceiver, and then he has a buy-in moment with God, and then all of a sudden he's coming to push God on us. Some of you have grown up in Christian hypocrisy, and you, you've seen that, and it's created dysfunction in your family. Some of you grew up with people you didn't know. Some of you uh, didn't have to learn about your family, but that's where you've been. Where, where I'm going with this is that our families don't have to determine where we're going, but they affect who we are. There's no doubt about it. But some of us in this room have allowed the the deception of our family unit dissolving or being the hard knocks we've gone through. We've let it put us on the sidelines instead of God using us where he wants to use us. Let me tell you, God is a redeemer. I don't care what kind of family, I do care, but I, I, I don't care what kind of family unit you grew up in. I want to know where you are today. And there's two things I want you to grab today. Number one is this. God is conforming us to his image despite our family background. Despite our family gra- background. 
Despite how you grew up, what you went through, let me tell you, some of you grew up in incredible affluence. See, it's harder to come to Christ when you're under affluence than when you realize you're broken. And we're all broken. And so God is conforming us to his image despite our family background. That's what he was doing Joseph. He was refining his character through this moment. And even his brothers, he's going to refine them through this hard time because he's setting up these 12 tribes that Jesus is going to come out of. And so some of you today grew up in, under lies and deceit and immoral activities, sibling abuse or other abuses, uh, blended family, abandonment, divorce, false religion or hypocrisy, poverty or privilege, either one. And, and you're thinking, it has affected me in such a way, I'm not sure God can ever use me. Let me tell you, God is so much bigger than that. And, and, and I want to step off here just a second. Some of you grew up in incredibly blessed homes. Incredibly blessed homes. Some of you kids right now, you don't know it, but you're growing up in an incredibly blessed home. And sometimes we can abuse that blessing... By not living for the Lord as well. So, dysfunctional, get off the sidelines. But Mark, you're acting like you don't care. I do care. Listen, none of us are perfect. We're all broken. We needed a Savior. And God is in the process of conforming us to his image despite. I hope that's an encouragement to you. The other thing I want you to grab is this. God cares about our circumstances and enables us to rise above. God cares about our circumstances and enables us to rise above. How we respond and react. You did not choose your family. I said that earlier. You did not choose your family. Some of you are adopted in this room and somebody chose you, but but you didn't choose your family. And uh, how we respond is key. Are, did you, do you respond by being entitled? Listen, you went through some terrible stuff. And, 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 the, and the fleshly way of responding is, I'm entitled. I'm entitled to happiness. I'm entitled to these feelings. I'm entitled. Or are you an overcomer? These things may never change. My dad may never come back. That husband that left me may never come back. My kid that ran off and has gotten into all kinds of things may not come back. And the temptation is to feel entitled, but God's strength wants you to be an overcomer. Another thought is this. Do you feel like pity me? Oh, I need to be pitied. Or is it I want to pursue God deeper? The temptation is to become self-centered, to look for yourself, because it's a defense mechanism, instead of other-centered. And God, through his strength, wants to make you other-centered. Or we can respond by having stunted maturation. We just don't mature. We stop where we're at. Or we see ourselves becoming more like Christ. Sometimes when the hard knocks come, we act out. Instead of being spirit-led. But this is something that I've, I've seen in many people 
in their story of dysfunction is it becomes their story instead of part of their story. You understand the difference? It becomes their story and it becomes an an ending instead of part of their story, which is just part and where God redeems. We have a God who is a redeemer. If you're looking for, for, for perfection in this book, quit looking. Other than Jesus, there is none in there. If you're looking for perfection in your elders and your pastoral staff here, go look somewhere else. It's not here. We're all broken. So how do I respond real quickly? The question I have for you is, have you truly had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? Have you truly had a life-changing encounter with Jesus? I don't mean religiosity. I don't mean that you've gone through some ritual. I mean, has there been a time in your life where you literally came face-to-face with the Lord and realized your brokenness and your sinfulness and said, God, when you sent Jesus, you sent him for me, and I need a Savior, I need a Redeemer, I, I take all my junk, which we all have, and I lay it at the cross before you to receive you. Have you done that? Well, Mark, it, it wasn't like that. I, well, how was it? I mean, has your life been transformed by the, the changing power of Jesus Christ. Because listen, if you have not had that encounter where really he becomes your father, then you will always live questioning your back, your background, your baggage. And then the, the last question I have for you is this. Does your identity come from life or who Christ says you are? Does your identity come from life? And when I say that, we, we get our identity by who, and, and you see, that's the way the media works is, is to change your identity. They tell you what you need, what you want, which instead of our identity comes from Christ. And you know, it says, I have all that I need in Him. And, but yet we get our identity from the world and we get our identity from one another. And men, so many of us get our identity from what we do, don't we? And we live in a day, this past week was just horrendous as far as some of the layoffs that that have happened. And and there are many people that are struggling today. But it's been interesting to talk to to some in our church that got laid off and just to hear how their faith is getting stronger. But yet our identity gets determined by so many other things. And sometimes you hear people say, well, I'm a a divorcee or I'm an abuser or I am... Whatever it may be. And God is saying, listen, your identity, when you came to me, is in me. I say that you're loved. I say that you're forgiven. I say that you're redeemed. I say that you're worthy. And that's who he says you are. You know, I don't know how this message strikes you today. We're going to be talking more and more about Joseph. But you know... If anybody had a chance to pity themselves, it would have been Joseph. But he didn't. And God could test his character and use him. What about you and me? I, uh, I end with this. Uh, most of you know my story in here. And, and uh, growing up in the, in the uh, uh, time when I grew up, my dad died when I was uh, 
less than two years old and, and uh, grew up without a dad. My mom eventually remarried. And, uh, and that was the case. But, you know, you, you feel those abandonment issues. You feel much of those stuff. And I remember um, there was a time over at uh, when I was on staff at First Baptist Church here in town as the youth minister that I was, I was questioning. I mean, if you've never had a dad, no, never called anybody a dad, it, it's, it's always something you miss. And, and I will miss that until eternity. But uh, I felt this impression, and I guess it was from the Lord, and uh, it, the impression was this. Take some of your letterhead. You may remember what letterhead was. It's the, the stuff you write your stuff on. And uh, I took the letterhead, and I, 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 the, the, uh, this was my impression. You need to write your dad a letter. And so I started doing this, and it became very emotional. But, you know, just to write this out uh, the way I did. And, you know, there's no way you can mail it. Uh, this is just for me. And I wrote it out. It took several pieces of paper to, to write out my feelings. But what I discovered in the midst of this is my heavenly father saying, listen, I'm your dad. I'm your dad. And uh, I know this hurts. I know you wish it was differently. But please understand, I have adopted you into my family. And I'm your dad. And some of you today need to know that there's a heavenly father that is saying, I'm your dad. And all that stuff you went through, it's going to be part of your story, but it is not the end of your story. Some of you are saying, Mark, I really want to get past that part of my story. He's going to get you there. He's going to get you there. I want to ask Brett and the team to come. I want to pray over you. Um, Today, some of you are uh, struggling. Some of you online are are struggling because you wish it was so different. Listen, it's not too late. It's not too late to come to Christ. It's not too late to let his Holy Spirit fill you and get you off of the sidelines and into the ministry that he's called you to. It's not too late to uh, step up the way he's calling you to step up. It's not too late for for some of you today to come into his family and say, Lord, I need you. In just a moment, as we sing the song of, of uh, just cementing what God is saying, this these steps have come an altar. And I, I think some of you today may need to come and put some of these this baggage on the altar today and not pick it up. We sweep it out, I promise you. Father, today I pray over all of us. Lord, the enemy's done a great job of getting us to live in our brokenness instead of living in our identity with you. And so, Lord, right now, I'm asking humbly, God, that you would show yourself in those dry, low places that many people are walking through and show them yourself. Lord, it is through our brokenness that you use us, and we don't understand that. But Lord, I pray right now, as we step into this time, that you you will be the forefront of our mind. In Jesus' name.